This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So welcome to our first day of Sashin. And welcome to uh, those of you who are doing Sashin for the first time here at the Austin Zen Center or at all. Welcome. I would like to talk about, <clears throat> during this retreat, my intention is to talk about um, some of the main teachings in the Yogacara school of Buddhism, which there isn't really a Yogacara school that's in practice today. There are some temples in Japan that are probably the closest thing. But Yogacara was a school of Buddhism that began in the fourth century and deeply influenced every school of Buddhism since. How many of you have had uh, exposure to Yogacara teachings? Some? A little bit? So I wanted to start maybe with a, a little bit of history. And I apologize if the um, feels class-like instead of Taisho-like, but we'll get there. I'm relying on all of you as well to help us get there by being in Sashin. So maybe I'll say a little bit about Sashin first. As I read in the admonitions this morning, Sashin is a time to clarify our deepest concern. And you might think, how is, how is sitting and staring at a wall deepening our, or clarifying our deepest concern? Many times when we reflect on our deepest concern, we feel like in order to actualize it, we need to jump into, into action. And so taking the backward step, carving out space in your life to not leap into action, except maybe when you're a server or a doan. <laughs> the concern here, also the deepest concern, as we unpack that, what is my deepest concern? What is the deepest concern of a lifetime? Sometimes it seems like it might be a question about what do I want? What do I need? And it's true, right? When we think of our deepest concern, it stems from this body and mind. However, as we practice more and more, we really start to look at this I and what is meant by the I, or the my, or the mine. And Yogacara is a fundamental way of looking at this question of self and other, and the distinctions that our mind seem to, or at least some aspect of our mind, seems to classify and categorize and carve up our experience. 
So in Sashin, we have this opportunity to enter into being with, as opposed to thinking about or doing. Over and over again, in Zazen, as we sit and deeply connect to the present moment, breath after breath, noticing the connection between our breath, our body, and our mind. Last night in our practice period gathering, the last one of this, when, when we ended the practice period, one of the people in the practice period brought up an objection to talking about body and mind in the sense of, I thought body and mind were not separate. And yet, when we talk, and he brought this up, when we put things into words, and we use language, which we kind of have to do for the, you know, a large part of our lives, that distinction is created by labeling. But when we use those labels, are we saying something about the inherent existence of those things, like body and mind? Oftentimes when we speak, we use expedient means. Sometimes we don't even need to use the words. We might say, pass me the, and then the word salt somehow hangs in our mouths and we're like, pass me the, and people know what we're talking about. But in Sashin, as we leave the realm of words during Zazen, we leave behind the realm of conceptualizing. We think not thinking. We let that part of our mental apparatus subside and we allow something else. We give the mind something else to pay attention to besides our ideas. We don't really need to think about breath so much to breathe. We don't really need to think about posture to find balance and uprightness in the body. We might, we might think of these things, but thinking about them doesn't get us any closer to experiencing our life as it unfolds moment after moment. In fact, it kind of gets in the way to be thinking. Also during Sashin, Sometimes we may think of Sashin as a time for a lot of Zazen, which is true. However, as you've noticed, if you've looked at the schedule, there's a lot more than periods of formal Zazen that happen during Sashin. For example, our Oryoki meals, our chanting service, walking meditation. We'll be having some mindful stretching throughout this retreat and work practice. And then there's the inclusion to include in Sashin 
waking up in the morning, washing, using the toilet, cleaning our bowls, cleaning the dishes. Maybe for some of you, driving, riding your bike, preparing to sleep. The intention of Sashim is to remove as many of the unnecessary distractions as much as we can. So not reading or writing, answering the phone, making phone calls, looking things up on the internet, just playing with our phones. So minimizing as much as possible anything that takes us out of this moment which, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's very challenging. And we notice this impulse to go somewhere other than right here. Over and over again, this impulse comes up. Maybe it uh, appears in the form of boredom and then restlessness, distraction, So during Sashin, this offers us a time to put all of the things we can put aside, aside, and then take up what is actually unfolding in the moment, which could very well be many different mental states, some positive, some negative. But we have this opportunity to stay with whatever is happening and not just swipe to the next thing, change the channel. So I encourage you throughout the Sashin to find that Zazen, body and mind, spaciousness, openness, welcoming your experience, being curious about and engaged with the slight minutia of details of moving from one place to another. Checking in with your intention at every time that you can. Being curious about that intention, not creating anything, but allowing, 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 letting go, showing up. In particular, in um, in our services, I encourage you all to, um, during service, in the morning when we have our long service, it's a sit-down service, it'll follow the same format that we have this morning each day. We'll have a number of different chants. There will be an all-Buddhas, and then we'll go into another part of the service. And so, um, and we'll always chant the ancestors at the end after the, the main chant. But we'll alternate between the Heart Sutra chanted in English and in Japanese and between the Shosanyo Kichijo Dorani which is for removing hindrance and the Enmei Juku Kanangyo which is for protecting life. So when you're in service to notice the harmony of body and mind and voice 
with others. I recommend being in Seiza during service if you can. Um, it allows you to have fuller access, I think, to chanting, your chanting voice, and you're also able to fully bow. It's a little hard when you're cross-legged, but please respect your body's needs and make adjustments. But mainly, in service, allow the words to uh, that you're chanting, just allow them to be what they are. You might be chanting something if it's a, something that's unfamiliar to you. Um, it might stimulate thought. You can just allow that to notice that something is stimulating thought. And then just come back, come back to your fullness of breath and body. The chanting that we do is um, pretty monotone, but we also, um, as you're chanting, to chant fully from your hara, chant from down deep in your abdomen. As much as possible, notice where the origin of your, the, your chanting voice comes from. So if you're noticing it's coming from your throat and upper chest, see if you can have mm, extend that so that you're incorporating your entire body in the chant. Not so much that you give yourself you know, a hernia or something, but um, deep chanting. There's something about giving over to what's happening in the moment allows us to experience something new. And if you notice something, some part of yourself that holds back, you can welcome that there too. And then just noticing it, try again. See what it's like to give your, your full voice along with the rest of the assembly while chanting. One thing that means is also because we're an assembly chanting, when you come to the end of your breath, simply drop out of the chanting, take a deep breath in, and then resume chanting where, uh, where the assembly is. You don't need to chant every word. You can drop out of the chanting and allow the chant to be carried by others. We support each other in this way. You may, just, may notice as well all the other many, many ways that during Sashin, as we're moving together as one body, we support one another. Maybe don't think about it too much, but see if you can notice the ways that we support each other, the ways we support creating this container of silence and stillness. I'm going to do a little bit of reading, starting with a poem. This comes from the book called Living Yogacara. It's a nice um, encapsulation of what we're looking at. <clears throat> at the clapping of hands, the carp comes swimming for food. The birds 
fly away in fright, and a maiden comes carrying tea. Sarusawa Pond. Sarusara Pond is a uh, it's a pond called uh, in formerly called Monkey Marsh Pond, and it's in the middle of the town or city of Nara, which happens to be where this uh, Yogacara temple sits. I'll read it again. At the clapping of hands, the carp comes swimming for food. The birds fly away in fright, and a maiden comes carrying tea. Sarusara Pond. So in this poem, we have this event that happens, quite simple, clapping of hands, which triggers a response. Different response with the carp that are in the pond. They hear the clapping and they come thinking, ooh, someone's gonna give us some fish flakes. The birds, however, when they hear the clapping, they fly away in fright. And then a maiden comes bearing tea, thinking, ah, the clapping means they're ready for tea. Each of these different responses is completely appropriate to the sound of clapping hands, but they're so different. What leads these different responses to happen? Why do the carp come when the bird fly away? Why does the maiden bring tea? How is each of these completely different responses to the sound of clapping hands completely appropriate? So looking a little bit at history, the Buddha lived and taught sometime in the, uh, between 563 and 480 before Common Era. During that time, the Buddha's teachings were not written down, but they were memorized, in particular by one of his main disciples, Ananda, who had a photographic memory. And these teachings were passed down orally for centuries and practiced memorized and put into practice. After the Buddha's passing, a group of his disciples met to decide, whoa, wait a minute, what the Buddha said, what was really, really essential and what wasn't so essential? That was came to be known as the First Council, where his disciples pondered his instructions and from accounts that I've heard there was a lot of uh, wishing that they had pinned him down more <laughs> on uh, his teachings so a lot of um, decisions were made at that council as to what the essential teachings were and what weren't in particular around the rules of conduct among other things As time passed, eventually uh, there was a second council 
a hundred years later, many generations later, a second council formed. And this was the council where kind of the beginnings of Mahayana Buddhism arose at that second council. At the third council, which happened 140 years after that, during that time, disciples of the Buddha Way began to write down and categorize, systematize all of the teachings that were expressed in the, uh, the sutras. This led to thousands and thousands of lists where they imagine being at that being in that time, moving from oral teachings to written systematized lists, putting things down, wanting to capture like what what did the Buddha really mean? What did he say? What's important? What's not important? And then being able to put down onto paper. Maybe it wasn't such a big deal, but I think of it as being quite huge. At that third council, after years and years, centuries of uh, practice and trying to systematize the teachings, the first compilation of the Abhidhamma Pitaka was created, outlining the basic elements of which the Buddha spoke of in his sutras. A nice description of the Abhidhamma is, and this comes from Ben Connolly, phenomenally, a phenomenally detailed cataloging of the process of consciousness. It's a pretty big endeavor to phenomenally, based in phenomena, not, uh, not ideas. A detailed catalog of all of the processes of human consciousness. The Abhidhamma sought to make things easier, maybe, so that people knew what they were doing as they followed the path. In this endeavor to uh, explain or explicate all of the characteristics of phenomena and experience, you might imagine that um, this was quite black and white, quite dualistic. The endeavor was to uh, seek to avoid ambiguity, to clarify differences. To analyze. So it turned into Buddhism, turned the Indian philosophers who were practicing Buddhism. Uh, when you look, we look back at the schools of Buddhism at that time, they're basic realist schools. This is what it is. However, at the time, in the a little bit later, a couple centuries later, at the beginning of the Common Era, year zero, things really started to shift. The Mahayana schools that started forming 300 years before 
became stronger. The Prajna Paramita literature started being compiled, the emptiness teachings, the perfection of wisdom teachings. This was considered the, the first wave of Buddhism, called, sometimes called the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. What the Buddha first spoke of when his, after he attained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree and spoke of the dependent origination of things, the twelvefold chain, spoke of karma, result of action. With the perfection of wisdom sutras, probably between five, between 50 before common era through 700 common era. So a long time, the Prajnaparamita literature was compiled and flourished. This is called the second turning of the wheel. And one of the main teachers who we chant, when we chanted this morning and we'll chant again, of the second turning of the Prajnaparamita literature is someone called Nagarjuna or Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna was lived around 150 to 200 common era and he taught in one of his main, the main work that he produced called the Mula Majamaka Karga or the fundamental teaching on the middle way. He taught that all dharmas or elements of experience are empty of independent existence or ultimate existence, that they have no marks, that they leave no trace, that everything that was taught in the first turning, all these systematized lists, while they may be very useful, were not real, not fundamentally absolutely real in the way that maybe those who wrote them down thought they were. This marks the big spread of Mahayana where everything taught in that first turning of the wheel was seen as ultimately empty. Emptiness does not mean false, does not mean uh, non-existent. It means non-existent in the ways that our mind, our minds, maybe naturally fall into thinking of existence or non-existence. Existent, but in a way different from how we, with our usual thinking, encapsulate it. So Nagarjuna set about to systematically deconstruct the Abhidhamma throughout his Mulamajamaka Karga. He takes different elements in each chapter and goes through using logic, using his main use of logic is in the reductio ad absurdum, taking up something and then following it to a conclusion that leads to a contradiction and saying, well, our initial axiom must not have been true. So over and over again, he deconstructs all the elements. And then he deconstructs emptiness itself. 
as an element so as to avoid what um, what we kind of maybe fondly call something like Zen sickness. Are you all familiar with Zen sickness? This idea of Zen sickness? Pat, do you want to say anything? What is Zen sickness? Yeah. Clinging to Zen. Anyone else? Specifically, clinging, clinging to uh, non-dual experiences or mm. oneness experiences. Uh huh. Yeah. So clinging to a non-dual experience or a oneness. Zen sickness is often seen as, um, I think of it as people who are fall into Zen sickness when they think. Uh, when they fall into the realm of, they go too far on the spectrum towards emptiness teachings and become nihilistic. So Zen sickness is kind of a nihilism. Maybe nothing matters, my conduct doesn't matter, things are non-dual, everything is one, therefore, you know, what I do doesn't, doesn't have an effect, or if it has an effect, that's your problem. <laughs> Anyone else have any thoughts about Zen sickness? Anyone experienced Zen sickness before? <laughs> it's kind of unpleasant, yeah? Our usual way is to do the opposite, to think of things as being real and fixed and static. In particular, ourselves. We think of ourselves as you know, it's not like we don't think we change. Of course we change. But we think of ourselves as being fundamentally the same all the way through our lives. Some kernel that doesn't change. That's the real us. That's the opposite of Zen sickness. It's a different kind of sickness. It's the sickness of eternalism. And the middle way that Nagarjuna sought to stake out, to find his way through, is between those two between eternalism or the ideas of things essentially existing from their own side without dependence on everything else in the universe to things not existing really at all and nothing being true. And so why does it matter? So between these two polar opposites, we today, how many millennia from then, are still in this conundrum. What is the middle way in our lives between falling into uh, nihilism and falling into eternalism? The second turning, as I said, was characterized by these Prajnaparamita teachings. So when we chant the Heart Sutra, You'll see this. This is this is very much the the heart, the pith of the Prajnaparamita literature. We chanted this morning in Japanese. Tomorrow morning we'll chant it in English, and then we'll chant it in Japanese again, and then English again. The third turning of the wheel comes two centuries, three centuries later. This comes 
in the form of Yogacara, in the form of um, the main two proponents of this school of Buddhism are Vasubandhu, whom we chant, and his half-brother Asanga. Both of them were born to a Brahmin family, upper caste system, and Vasubandhu, both of them were also raised in the school of in the school of Abhidhamma. So they were very well versed and the Mahayana Abhidhamma, there's many different Abhidhammas, but the Mahayana Abhidhamma is said to have come from Vasubandhu and the Sangha. What it does, and this is the subject of our Sashin, is this school, the Yogacara school, which is also called the Chittamatra school, or the mind-only school, or the consciousness-only school, or mere concept school of Buddhism. Considered this third turning, uh, Vasubandhu was lived around the time of uh, 4th century, 4th, I think he was, he was born in the 4th century. And what the Yogacara school tries to do is integrate is to bring together the first turning teachings and the second turning teachings. So you have the first turning teachings, which are a form of realism. And then you have the second turning teachings, which, while Nagarjuna was extraordinarily thorough, the Prajnaparamita literature, this is empty, that's empty, this other thing that you think of and care about, that's also empty. In fact, emptiness itself is also empty. It doesn't leave us with much. It's kind of the, um, the cutting away of duality. So the third turning of the wheel is brought forward by these two teachers. And we're going to focus on... Um, Nagarjuna, I mean, sorry, um, Vasubandhu. This is a way to avoid falling into these polar opposites of realism or eternalism and nihilism. It's a return to looking at the processes of mind, of processes of consciousness. And there's a whole system, and there's some debate over the last millennia even today, there is some debate as to whether the Yogacara school and the teachings of the Yogacara school are to be taken as a metaphysical claim or as an epistemological claim. The difference between those is if it's a metaphysical claim, it's saying something about the structure of reality, something that is the case of reality. Whereas an epistemological claim is saying that it's something about what we believe and why we believe it. So more along the lines of the structure of mind as opposed to the structure of things, external objects. So again, we have this, we see this duality being brought in, the duality of things that are within mental, the mental space that have mental existence and things that have physical existence. And to this day, I still get into arguments with some of my Dharma brothers and sisters <laughs> about whether Yogacara teachings are 
metaphysical or epistemological in nature. I'm a big fan of the epistemological school. <laughs> so I would like to read you one of Vasubandhu's works. There are 30 verses on the nature of consciousness. And I'm going to read it to you and just let it sink in. Maybe, and this is kind of uh, a strange thing to do during Sashin, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is I'm going to make a copy of it, print it, and put it in the foyer. So in terms of reading, you can read the schedule, <laughs> and you can read the 30 verses. Okay? And if you don't feel like reading it, you don't need to. But I'm going to be referring to it. So, from Vasubandhu, this is the 30 verses on consciousness only. Everything conceived as self or other occurs in the transformation of consciousness. This transformation has three aspects. The ripening of karma, the consciousness of a self, and the imagery of sense objects. The first of these is also called alaya, the store consciousness, which contains all karmic seeds. What it holds and its perception of location are unknown. It is always associated with sense contact, attention, sensation, perception, and volition. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it is unobstructed and karmically neutral. This again is a laya. Like a river flowing, in enlightenment it is overturned at its root. Dependent on the store consciousness and taking it as its object, so dependent on a laya and taking it as its object, is manas, the consciousness of a self. It arises and consists of thinking. It is always associated with four afflictions, self-view, self-delusion, self-pride, and self-love, and is obstructed but karmically neutral. Along with these four, from where it is born comes sense contact, attention, sensation, perception, and volition. It is not found in enlightenment, the meditation of cessation, or the supramundane path. That is the second transformation. The third is the perception of the six senses, which are beneficial, harmful, or neither. It is associated with three kinds of mental factors, universal, specific, and beneficial, as well as the afflictions and secondary afflictions and the three sensations. Three sensations are uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The universal factors are sense contact, attention, sensation, and uh, perception and volition, the specific are aspiration, resolve, 
memory, concentration, and intellection. The beneficial factors are faith or trust, conscience, humility, a lack of desire, aversion, and delusion. Energy, tranquility, carefulness, equanimity, and nonviolence. The afflictions are desire, aversion, delusion, pride, wrong view, and doubt. The secondary afflictions are anger, hatred, hypocrisy, malice, envy, selfishness, deceitfulness, guile, arrogance, harmfulness, lack of conscience and humility, sluggishness, restlessness, lack of faith, laziness, carelessness, forgetfulness, distraction, unawareness, remorse, sleepiness, initial thought and analysis can be either afflictive or not. The five sense consciousnesses arise on the root consciousness together or separately. The five consciousness, I'll get, I'll get to that. Depending on conditions, like waves arise on water. Thought consciousness always manifests, except in the realm of no thought. The two thought-free meditation states, unconsciousness and thought-free sleep. The transformation of consciousness is conceptualization. What is conceptualized does not exist. Thus, everything is projection only. Consciousness is all the seeds transforming in various ways through mutual influence producing the many conceptualizations. Karmic impressions and the impressions of grasping self and other produce further ripening as the former karmic effect is exhausted. Whatever thing is conceptualized by whatever conceptualization is of an imaginary nature. It does not exist. The other dependent nature is a conceptualization arising from conditions. The complete realized nature is the other dependent nature's always being devoid of the imaginary. Thus it is neither the same nor different from the other dependent, like impermanence, etc., when one isn't seen the other is also not seen. With the threefold nature is a threefold absence of self-nature, so it has been taught that all things have no self. The imaginary is without self by definition. The other dependent does not exist by itself. The third is no self-nature, that is, the complete realized nature of all phenomena, which is thusness. Since it is already, it is always already thus, projection only. As long as consciousness does not rest in projection only, or mind only, thought only, the tendencies of grasping self and other will not cease. 
By conceiving what you put before you to be projection only, you do not rest in just this. When consciousness does not perceive any object, then it rests in projection only. When there is nothing to grasp, there is no grasping. Without thought, without conception, this is the supramundane awareness, the overturning of the root, the ending of the two barriers. It is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm, the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. So that may have been a lot. Are there any observations, comments, or questions? The big question that I have is, as we hear about these teachings, how to find out what it is to practice with them. If they are unhelpful to your practice or you don't see their usefulness, if they seem to distract from being in the body and in the present, then don't think about them. But in terms of practicing with them, just looking at your experience, noticing when uh, a projection arises. We all know what projections are. We usually uh, think of things as projections when they're not real. But I invite you to imagine whatever you're experiencing, imagine it as a conditioned projection. It may be real in a sense of, in conventional terms, but is it fundamentally real, as in it will never change? It exists from its own side. If you notice yourself thinking in that way, you might notice physical sensations that come along with it, like a feeling of stuckness or rigidity, So as you sit and as we go through all the different aspects of Sushin together, if all you do is keep coming back to your breath, which is ever moving, that that is enough. Thank you.